Welcome to Rough Drafts, How God Writes His Love in Our Stories, a podcast that explores the faith journeys of our friends and neighbors in Burns, Tennessee. Everyone has a story to tell, and in this podcast, we'll hear powerful and inspiring stories of how God works in the ordinary lives of people like you and me. Our stories are unfinished and perfectly imperfect. They are just rough drafts, a glimpse of what is to come because God is still at work, writing plot twists, introducing new characters, and bringing good even from the most challenging circumstances. Join us as we see what God is up to in our stories. Here's your host, Matthew Hyatt. Today's guest will be familiar to you. You have heard her on our Three Musketeers episode, and it's not Margaret, and I said her, so you're probably thinking Paul, but it's not Paul. Today you have my motorcycle riding, help center directing, lemonade and hot dog making, formerly, friend, Renee Bame. Hey, welcome. welcome. Yes, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Are you? Are you really? Well, no, I'm actually a little bit nervous, so <laughs> just get that out in the open. You know, what I love is every single person who's on this says they're nervous because it is really weird to sit in a room with me. That, that's just weird in and of itself, but it's weird. And I'm, I'm glad we got the windows. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, maybe maybe you'll get a rescue call here in a few minutes. Um, but to, to record yourself talk is weird. But to tell your story is also something that we tend not to do, except for those who are closest to us. So, um. Well, yeah, I, you know, I tell people all the time I'm an open book and sometimes I say more than I should or sometimes I'll forget something that I need to say. Um, so, um, yeah, I get a little distracted, too. So, you know, squirrel, squirrel rabbit, you know, birds out the window. <laughs> hey, it is what it is. You know, you do what you got to do. Absolutely. OK, I know there's a million stories that we could talk about in I just, I'm going to say go. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what's your God story? How'd you end up who you are, where you are? What has God done in your life that you want to tell us about? Well, um, God has done a lot, and um, I'll start he back. That, you know? Yes, he does. I'll start back into uh, 1944. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> 1944. You're looking good for your age. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, so uh, back in 1944, um, a beautiful woman. Um, gave birth to my dad um, and so I'm always going to be forever grateful for her and uh, for my grandfather. Um, one of the things that uh, people those that are closest to me know that when my grandmother was given birth nearly 80 years ago um, she um, had a very difficult childbirth and so uh, my uncle was already uh, born and um, they actually thought that he was deceased and they had put him in another room and uh, she had to then choose her life or my dad's life. And I know that's not something that uh, we have to worry about as much now, but um, but she did. She chose to um, give my daddy life and um, took her last breath. And so um, so one of my goals later in life was that, you know, I want to honor the choice that she made by being the very best version of myself that I can be for um, for her memory, for the Lord, and for my family. Wow. Okay, so this starts intense. <laughs> we are two minutes and 54 seconds in, and we've had our first death. <laughs> okay. 
Yes, and you know, and I was actually named after her, but I did not value that because my brothers were so mean to me um, because I am the youngest of three. And so um, my first name is Francis, so my brothers often reminded, um, called me, not reminded, but called me Francis the Talking Mule. So, um, you know, I did not value that name until I got older, but I do go by Renee. Um, But, you know, when people ask, you know, I will let them know. And so that's cool, though. Like talk about a story that gives shape to your life, knowing that you wouldn't be here had your grandmother not chosen to prioritize someone over herself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and the blessing behind that is that my uncle actually lived, too. He um, he pulled through. And so uh, he and my dad are still living today and they are identical twins. Um, My uncle lives in Ohio and my dad lives uh, 10 feet from me. And so they'll be 80 this year. And so um, they were actually born one of about 15 groups of twins in the white um white's creek area in about a five to ten year span so you know there was a big yeah it was a a really cool deal back then and would it be now too but uh anyway so they are um the wallace twins of white's creek the wallace twins of white's creek that sounds like a bluegrass man (laughs) (laughs) yes or maybe like an old crime syndicate i'm not sure which yes and so um so anyway um you know that's kind of how we started and um my mom and dad met um my dad was a soldier and i met her from germany and when he was over serving um in germany and i tell people all the time you know um it's i've got a, a neat side of the story in world war ii both of my grandparents my grandfathers one served under the american um, army and one served for hitler oh and so um, my reunions were exciting (laughs) well my grandfather um, was a prisoner of war and so uh, he was captured by the americans and the americans um, were so good to him that my grandfather absolutely loved america and so um to hear his story is was always really powerful um and we have his um you know his military uniform from back then and where he etched everything off because he did not want to be associated with hitler and so um yeah his story is really really cool and so um man i know know, right um so that's a little bit of my history um so my mom and dad uh, moved back here to america and um, they started their life here with uh, my brother Um, he was born in germany and so um my parents had a very rough start um, to their life here in america because my mom was german and um, back then people often criticized the women from other countries that they were marrying americans just to get over here to america well no one would say that anymore at all (laughs) right (laughs) and so uh people were really mean to her and uh so she had to learn to be tough, and um, so my dad would work two, three jobs to keep my mom home, um, and, you know, I've had amazing parents. I have amazing parents. We joke, but they literally live 10 feet from me. Yeah. We all live on the same property, and, um, you know, they did the very best they could with um, with the 
resources that they had, um, you know, and some people will say, well, y'all grew up in poverty. Some people say you grew up poor, you know, well, we grew up living within our means and, you know, it did land us living in a trailer park. And so um, I grew up in a close-knit trailer park in East Nashville. Um, And um, we were living um, where we were the minorities um, for, you know, for much of my upbringing. And so, you know, school was a little difficult at times. But, uh, you know, my parents, they loved everyone. I never um, got subjected to, um, you know, there being any kind of race division. And, you know, that my parents were just really, really good at that. And um, but we didn't know the Lord. And um, I know you and I've kind of talked a little bit about this, and so I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, My early experience with church people was really bad. Uh, Like I said, my mom— Tell the story. Be frank with it. My mom and dad um, were mistreated, uh, my mom especially, um, because uh, all of my dad's family on his mother's side were uh, devout Church of Christ, and— Nothing that my mom could do was right, and um, so, you know, they were constantly— because she was from a different church. She was from a different upbringing. She didn't dress right. She didn't talk right, and they thought she was using my dad. Um, they thought that she was not a good mom, and, you know, well, in Germany, they believed a lot differently, and so she might have been considered rough around the edges, so they'd beat her up with a Bible quite a bit and just um, be very judgmental and hard. And so uh, my dad was raised Church of Christ, and so he just stepped away from it. And um, so what that did is that put a very negative look on religion for us growing up. And so um, my mom did not like church she did not like religious people didn't want to have anything to do with any of that and so um i can remember being um growing up in the trailer park and all these churches um would come because you know every all the churches want to evangelize the poor mm-hmm. not that the middle class or upper class need jesus but the poor need jesus more and well yeah the poor are easier to evangelize that's why the churches do it right <laughs> and, I, i'm not trying to i mean there yes there is a you know Jesus says, take care of the poor. So that's a thing. Mm-hmm. But if you're thinking a little more cynically about why churches send buses to the poor neighborhoods, it's because if they send the buses to the middle class and the rich neighborhoods. Those kids are off playing sports or video games. The kids in the poor neighborhoods will get on the bus. It's easier to do. So churches do what's easy. You know what? I agree with that. Mike and I, um, we ride motorcycles. Yeah, uh, well, we used to really. We're not um, there in that season right now. But um, I always couldn't figure it out. I was like, why are all these groups targeting the Harley riders? Why is there not some kind of evangelism going for, you know, the Hondas or, you know, the BMWs? But the guys on gold wings don't need Jesus. It's the right. angels on Harley. Right. Do. And so um, that was funny, too, because that kind of went along with the way that I was brought up. <laughs> it's like, ah. But um, so, you know, I remember being a child um, growing up. My mom and dad, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with the church, and they were really vocal about it. And um, so as a child growing up in a trailer park, the church people, whether whatever denomination it was, um, because there were multiple de- denominations that would come to our trailer park and they'd walk around, knock on the doors and invite us. And then they would come pick us up and they would um, bribe us yeah. um, to go to church. 
Um, and so we would get on their little bus or their big bus. One of the churches had a great big like city bus. And I remember when they came in and they run into one of the uh, people's cars and no. getting that fixed was a an ordeal. But I remember all those little things, right, because it just went right along with what my mom and dad would say about church people. And so, you know, really that hypocritical, uh, judgmental. And so um, I remember we went to one church for um, about a year, and I guess we wasn't meeting what their expectations were. And so they just stopped coming to get us. You know, I remember all of us, you know, you know, about 15, 20 kids waiting for the church bus to come, and it never came back. And, you know, so when I reflected back on that, it's like, were we not meeting their expectations? You know, what what was the reasoning behind that? I don't know, but in a child's mind, yeah. you know, and I... You know, for all it could have been, the bus broke down or the, the one guy who had a license got sick. You know? It could have been, but no one communicated <clears throat> with us. And, you know, and then that was the last time we saw anybody yeah. from that church. And, you know, and then churches would come and we're going to have ice cream parties. And so they would... So then we looked at it all like... The church is bribing us. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, we're thugs and heathens anyway. Let's go, you know. And our parents were fine with that because it's like, hey, y'all are out of the house yeah, for a few hours. They're here for a while, got you some free drinks. Right, yep. And so, but anyway, so I... You know, you what's know. funny, and I know you've got a whole lot more story to tell, so I know we can't like camp out here forever, but the delicate dance of how you do things to serve people, it's so hard. It's so easy to do it poorly to turn acts of love into acts of bribery. Mm-hmm. And people can tell when you're only giving me something because you think you're going to fix me, change me, or recruit me. It's a really hard thing for a church to do. I'm going to do this good thing because it's the right thing to do and because we love you, not because we're trying to get you. And the truth is, if you're a Christ follower who's an evangelical, you believe in trying to get people. Like, that's mm-hmm. part of it. One of the reasons we do good deeds is to try to help people know God. But if it's, I'm just doing this to try to get you to my church, mm-hmm. man, it, I'm not saying this real well, but it's it's sticky for us. It, it does, and, it's, <clears throat> and it sticks literally with yeah. people. And so, you know, I, I did, I grew up with that, and I remember, I don't know if I should share this, but I'm going to go ahead and share do, it. Do, uh, <laughs> well, that's where, that's what you're... Good story stuff. <laughs> You're saying um, to uh, share it, so I will. Uh, So I remember being probably about 12, 13 years old. Um, I might have been a a little bit older. And by that time, I never wanted to have anything to do with a church because, you know, when you would start getting close to people, then they'd stop coming and, you know, that kind of thing. So I'd already been hurt and hurt all the other stuff. And um, still, and I got to experience how my dad's side of the family were treating us and my mom and you know because even though uh they would love us we i never felt truly comfortable going to their homes um because you know i always felt like we were second class citizens and so and that's not anything that my mom and dad ever wanted us to feel like because like i said my mom and dad i couldn't have asked for better parents and so um so anyway, I remember one day the church bus years later started one of the church buses started coming back down. And by that time, I was already in my thug stage. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> as they were leaving, I was like, you know what? And I mooned them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, 
there you go. And uh, you sure told them. <laughs> I sure told them. And of course, to all the little people on there was like, ah! you know, it's like me and my little self at that point was uh, really, really funny. But anyway, you know, because that's just the way that I viewed them. Yeah. And so, um, you know, school was rough. Life was rough. And, you know, Nashville in that era, you know, it's super weird to me. That East Nashville is trendy and expensive now because like East Nashville for me growing up and was don't go there after dark. Right. And yes, I know. I, I was listening that you grew up in that area. Um, and I've always forgot to ask you what area well, I was in West Nashville. Oh, we you were one of them. To touch East okay. You know? <laughs> so, yes. Because um, we were, you know, um, we were rough, um, but we were a product of our surrounding. And, yeah. you know, um, I grew up at the end of a dead road, dead end road. And, you know, it was a trailer park. It was pretty secluded. Um, but, you know, man, Dickerson Road was rough. And so uh, we had our ladies of the night named. And, you know, one of them, I had her name, Lula Bell. I was, we was joking about that earlier. But, you know, we didn't know their names. But we would anyway, uh, because I remember at the top of our road from where I live, there was a strip club. And um, I don't know where you would go to have sex, pay to have sex with the ladies. And we would sit literally out on my friend's uh, porch and watch the ladies of the night come in and out of this downstairs basement uh, building. And um, that's just what they did. Men came and go and the women. And, you know, that was just part of what we saw. You know, my mom gave me some advice about that growing up when we drove on Dickerson one time. And she said, you know how you can tell if it's a prostitute or a cop? She said, if they have teeth, it's a cop. And at the time, it was a joke, but it's not because the women who end up in that lifestyle yes. are so abused, so harmed, so broken. Yeah, I mean, there's just kind of this this myth that, that this is something where they make money. This is a, a life of last resort. It, it is. And, you know, in my heart later in life just began to break for women, especially women in that industry, because, you know, when they were born, somebody didn't look at them and say, oh, you know what, when you grow up, I want you to be in this lifestyle. No. And I'm sure that little girl had lots of dreams until she become broken. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's what I look back on my life is, you know, I have a lot of brokenness in my life. And, um, you know, my parents did the very best they could do. And, you know, I still... Um, you know, I still experienced a lot. I saw a lot. And, um, you know, I took my husband and my daughter the other day. We drove down through um, that area. Uh, and, you know, as I was driving down Dickerson Road, um, you know, I looked at Nevea and I said, the first time I ever saw somebody shot and killed was right there. And I'll never forget that, that young man when he was shot and just literally his body falling down that car. I'll never forget that. And um, and I said, you know, and, and I started remembering. I'm like, oh, I remember up here that night I snuck out um, to go meet my boyfriend in a few trailer parks over, you know, that we came up on a John and or kind of, you know, that pimp deal with um, his ladies and how we got chased through the woods in the middle of the night because we interrupted stuff we weren't supposed to, you know, and 
some of the dangers that we experienced and, you know, that my parents didn't know because, you know, I was sneaking out and um, to go do things I shouldn't be doing. And uh, and so and then when we pulled down into um, the park, you know, all these things started flowing back through my mind and, um, you know, as sheltered and as protected as my mom and dad tried to keep us um, still being kids we still found ways to to do things that they didn't know about. And my mom will tell you, you know, just stop talking. I don't want to hear about any more of this because it literally, and now as a parent, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it would just kill me to, um, or break my heart to have my children sit down and start talking about things like what me and my brothers um, did. And so, so, so mom, don't listen for a little bit. Okay. <laughs> and so um, she's bless her heart. My, my mom and dad have had to listen to my testimony more than they want. And so they uh, I'm sure. But they're proud of me and they love me and they support me. And so um, so here I am, you know, um, I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. And, um, you know, and I'll just throw this out there real quick, um, you know, my parents didn't know, um, but I was experiencing um, sexual abuse for a period of about three or four years by people that my parents trusted. And, um, and you know, in, in that time, people didn't talk about it. And so, you know, I was constantly being threatened. You know, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. If you say something, nobody's going to believe. And so I started internalizing that uh, pretty bad. And so by the time I was about 13, 14, I was pretty sexually active and, um, you know, just, you know, because I, I felt like that was the way that you kept people's interest or guys' interest. And so um, and then uh, in my rebellion at 16, I um, became pregnant. I was about 15, 16 um, with my first pregnancy and I lost that pregnancy. Um, and then uh, and then I, I got pregnant again at 16 and I was in high school and you know, this trauma starts coming back, this unchecked trauma, and um, and my life choices. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, because everybody wants to go back and blame their parents. You know what? There comes a point in your life where you're old enough to make your decisions. Stop blaming your parents. Yeah. I mean, you know the difference between right and wrong. So I would never say, well, this is my parents' fault. You know, No, I made these decisions, and I want to yeah. make that clear because uh, my parents were amazing. They are amazing, um, but I made choices. Yeah, I think a real part of growing up to be emotionally healthy is recognizing, one, the influence that our parents and our environment had on us because it does affect who we are and what we become. Mm-hmm. But then moving from that to two, I have choices I have to make on the basis of that. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. And it's tough because, you know, if you didn't have parents who showed you right and wrong, your ability to make choices, your hands are tied behind your back. I'm I'm not going to try to pretend like that's not true. You know, right. Part of why you and I are where we are is because for the things our moms and dads did right and wrong, they gave us a sense of there. They might not have given you a great sexual ethic at 15, mm-hmm. but they did give you a sense of justice. Yes. Of, of there were. You know, people sometimes think when you go into the jail that it's like an unlock. It is the most orderly place in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. There is a code. There's a reason I can't have a sex offender in my Bible class with people who aren't, because there's a code. There's a reason why somebody 
who used to be a police officer can't be in the same class as somebody, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So don't, that's again a sticky thing. And one of the things, I know I'm jumping way ahead, so don't let me go too far here. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate a whole lot about you and your stories and what you're sharing and what you do at the Help Center, you live in a space where you have to navigate a whole lot of these tensions simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And my experience is that most of us tend to not do subtlety well. We tend to drive the joy bus into the neighborhood and say, here's your ice cream and Jesus. Or we tend to do nothing. When I think there's an answer somewhere between the two. It's a really good answer, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, and I try to be that person, yeah. right? I want to, you know, um, I try to evaluate everything. And so um, so I, I got pregnant um with my son, Brent, who I just hold on a minute. That's okay. Um his dad and I um we we realized that we were young and um so you know I was in school and um you know I became a topic because you know I'm fifty one I'm fifty two and so um you know back then it it wasn't like it became later on. And so um, I remember um, going to school and telling my teacher, who I adored, that I was pregnant. And she looked at me and said, you know, you've just thrown your whole life away. Oh. And she just stopped communicating with me. And it it just it broke my heart um, because she was that one positive teacher influence that I had. And uh, and then when I went to the only man that I knew as a grandfather, um, he told me, he said, there are two worthless things in this world and um, a white picket fence and a pregnant teenager. And um, that was very difficult for me. And, um, you know, I know that I broke my mom and dad's heart. And, you know, obviously, you know, family on other sides, right? You know, because I had been criticized, you know, for getting pregnant so early. And so, um, but anyway, um, we we mustered through that. And my parents became extremely supportive um, of me and their dad and just trying to help us navigate through this. And so by the 17, you know, when I, um, I had him, um, you know, that's why when people tell me, oh, my grandparents are totally against me being pregnant for whatever reason, it's like, wait till that baby's born. Yeah. Wait till that baby is born. Um, because as uh, as hurtful as my grandfather's words were to me, and obviously they played an impact in my story because I still remember them right. And but when he saw Brent, nothing else in this world mattered. Mm. And until the day he died, he loved Brent with his whole heart and his whole everything he had. And so um, and he became one of my biggest supporters in my few years that um, we were struggling. Um, And so then, um, you know, by the time I was 18, I was pregnant again um, with my uh, daughter. And. at that point, the um, conversation of abortion had uh, come about, and uh, 
and we were really contemplating abortion because Brent was not, there's 18 months between the two of them. And so, you know, we were already struggling. We were already having a difficult time. And um, we were living in a house with no electricity, uh, no water and trying, you know, and there was a lot of difficulties going on. And so um, the conversation of abortion came up. And so um uh, we were looking at that route, and I uh, had a lady um, come to me that had had abortion before, and she um, she had said, you know, Renee, you guys really need to think about this. And she set me down and gave me the most graphic definition of an abortion. Yeah. And there was just absolutely no way that I could go through with it. Right. And, um, and, you know, Bobby was supportive of me and, you know, and I remember going and telling our family, hey, guess what? Now we've got baby number two coming. And, um, and so, um, and I'm so thankful for that, um, that, that conversation with that woman, um, because that graphic conversation conversation Mm -hmm. that she had with me. Uh, and so I, you know, I had to drop out of high school. (laughs) Oh, Oh, by the way, I was still in high school. (laughs) And so, um, I had to drop out of high school that had become extremely difficult for me being, you know, having a kid and now I'm pregnant again. And so, uh, now, you know, I don't have my high school diploma and, um, my high school dropout, beauty school dropout, you know, um, and, and I hate how those those words become identities. Mm-hmm. It's not you dropped out of high school. It's I am a dropout. Yes. And man, you are not an adjective. Like, you know, you are. There are things that, that have happened to us. They are part of us, but they shouldn't identify us. Yes. And then I had somebody tell me that um, me and my children would not ever amount to anything other than just another statistic and someone living off the government. And uh, so that was really difficult, um, become a a really difficult part of our story. Um, And you know what? And and that's why I think why I do what I do, because um, we went through a lot during those first years um, that I had the children, um, you know, our marriage was struggling because we did later marry. Our marriage was struggling. You know, we went through bouts of no electricity, no water. Um, you know, I'd gone to food banks. I'd gone to, I uh, used to sell plasma because I could sell plasma and make more money to help feed my kids. Um, you know, even driving with Nevaeh the other day down through my community, I said, you see this um, Circle K um, back when um, Brent and Ashley were little and I didn't have money. Um I would stand on outside that door and they did this little coupon thing. And so when people would come out, I'd ask them for their coupons. And so that I could fill these little books up because every full book you'd get, you get a dollar's worth of food. Um, And so and that was how, you know, we were just being very creative as to how we could feed our children and um, and take care of things. Um, My mom and dad, again, were great. I will just say this. My kids never had to worry about diapers. They never had to worry about formula or baby food because my mom was a very big, you know, um, proponent of you made your bed, you'll lay in it. And um, but I am not going to have my grandkids suffer because your choices. And so um, kids never deserve to suffer. No. 
my mama always was, uh, you know what? People may be against what you chose to do, but your children were never a mistake. They're never a sin. They're never, you know, and her and my dad were really big on that. And, um, you know, and I had kids, so, you know, you have to anyway. (laughs) So, um, you know, um, and then one day uh, everything come crashing down on me. Um, We had a house. um, Things were kind of going okay. We, you know. We, you know, we were going as good as we could be going, and I just slipped into some uneasy emotions, and uh, because of this stuff from my earlier childhood, I had suppressed it, and so um, as we, um, we, I had had Ashley, and um, she was right at about a year old, and I had to take her to the doctor at General Hospital, and General Hospital was located in a different kind of the community, and it was a common practice that when you brought in a child, for whatever reason, they automatically inspected them for signs of child sexual abuse. Mm. Uh, And I was not prepared for that. Mm. And so um, when... He started to inspect her for was what they were calling it. I fell plumb apart and um, and it it started me on a spiral. And um, because I could not believe that somebody was looking at her naked other than me and her dad, you know, she was a baby that that she was mine to protect. And um and so I had, within just a couple of weeks, had found myself um, suicidal. And so uh, because I just couldn't handle it, you know, all these this past trauma was flooding me down. And, um, you know, I did have a job and, you know, and, and they were trying to be supportive and I just couldn't couldn't cope. And so um, Bobby called my mom and said, hey, she's been crying. I can't get her to stop crying. You're going to have to come do something. And so my mom come got me and I told her, I said, I just want to die. I want to commit suicide. You know, here's how I want to do it. Um, My family would be better off without me. I can't protect anybody. And so um, my mom and dad, that was a hard reality because all of that trauma that they'd been protected from that they didn't know about the the bomb goes off it all just it exploded and so uh my mom's like what can i do and uh, so she took me to tennessee christian medical center and i spent two weeks there uh and um you know and i'm always thankful that i did not act on my emotions and where I was in that state of mind um, because I would have missed out on so much life mm-hmm. of my children and my family. And so um, I started to begin to get the help that I needed. And um, so um, unfortunately, my marriage didn't survive and um, I become a single mom. And that life uh, also led into a life of a lot of struggles um, because um, I still didn't want to have anything to do with church, Christians, and anything like that, which is funny because I went to Tennessee Christian. Yeah. And um, 
And I will say that was my first encounter with God um, at Tennessee Christian, at Tennessee Christian um, because um, one of the things they gave me was a Bible. And um, I, you know, sometimes I skip out on a point, but right before I ended up in Tennessee Christian, I had uh, gone to a church. I tried church and I tried it for about six months. No. I'm getting ahead of myself. I went to Tennessee Christian. I did everything that I needed to do, um, and I was able to get released. But I had an encounter with Christ in that that time, and so that sparked something in me. And so when I got out, a friend of mine invited me to church, and so I started on that path. But what happened is when I went into that church, um, the women— distanced themselves from me and so um and i typically got along better with men and so i gravitated toward the men and the women pushed themselves away from me so i'm basically experiencing firsthand again things that i heard my mama say and um and i loved the lord and i was just you know but uh, it only lasted about six months, and uh, because my fam, you know, not my parents, but some of my friends were like, "Oh, this church thing ain't working for you," you know, and yeah. um, so I just pulled away, and um, I didn't want a part of it. the The women were mean to me, and you know, and and I had a weakness when it came to men, and so, um, so. So then I become single, a single mom, and we're going through um, this and um, trying to make ends meet, trying to survive. Um, I had a lot of sin, a lot of stuff I was doing, but God was still calling on me, and I could feel him calling on me. And uh, But I was running. I was resisting it. I, was, I didn't want no part of it. The church was mean to me multiple times. I experienced it as a child. I heard it from my parents. Um, I went to this small church. They, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with me. And so I had another friend invite me uh, to a divorce recovery. And so I went with him and that seemed like, oh, I could do this. It was a larger church. And so um, in Clarksville. And so I went there and. Uh, my kids and I started going to Sunday school, and I'll never forget this. I was standing in the Sunday school class, and um, they had us all in a circle holding hands, and we had been talking about the woman at the well and um, about how terrible and bad um, she was and how people didn't, you know, she had to go by herself, you know, and just the story of the woman at the well. And um, then, you know, at that church, the bell rang. So we're all standing around in a circle. And everything they were describing in the circle about the woman at the well was me. Mm. Everything. You know, um, because of where I was in my relationship with men, um, you know, the failures, all of that, the shame that they were describing me. Uh, and and then the class dismissed. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get to hear the rest of the story. Oh, wow. And I never went. I didn't go back. Wow. I did not go back. And so um, there goes another Right. That's missed opportunity. And so uh, I was just so full of shame and guilt 
and you know I'm ever going to amount to anything. I'm just damaged goods, and so um, I, uh, yeah. Um, so I started um, working at a company in Nashville, and um, I had some uh, guys in that department, um, in a department next to me that were older, and uh, they would just tell me all the time, Renee, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. You know, Jesus loves you. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, right. I'm just such a reject. He don't want anything to do with me. I'm too bad. I'm terrible. And so um, with that, um, you know, they were doing this, and I was having terrible relationships. I was just, you know, my relationship where men were so toxic and so unhealthy. And so, um, but I was trying so hard to fill a need that only God could fill, but I was seeking it elsewise, you know, in drinking and relationships with men. And, um, and it wasn't working. It just wasn't working. Yeah. And so um, one day, I, one night I was at my house and um, this Bible that somebody had given me back from when I was in Tennessee Christian was in my bedroom. Who knew, right? Yeah. And um, and I just remember sitting there on that couch and it's like, God, my life is terrible. I'm a single mom. Um, I feel like a failure. Um, you know, I'm in all these unhealthy relationships with married men because um, I felt like that was I could be in control of it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It was safe for me and I could control it. And, um, you know, I, I'm I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. I'm just tired. And uh, it was like something just snapped and my whole life changed instantaneously. My heart for the Lord just grew and I remember um, I went back to work and I went to Mr. Bob who was one of the men that was like Renee I'm, I'm praying for you you know and and I told him what had happened and I said something's just different and you know Mike um, was my supervisor he was my boss and I'm like, you know, because I used to be the center of all the jokes. You know, I would be writing with the dirty jokes and all the course talking now, not around Mike, but, you know, in the environment that I was in. And uh, I'm like, Mike, I, I need you to put some glass walls around me. And he did. And I said, because uh, I just can't handle all this talk anymore. Mike, I need a cordless phone because I need to be able to go over here to this other department where Mr. Bob was at so that I didn't have to. And um, and Mike's like looking at me like, what is going on? And um, and it was evident. Um, And so then I was still struggling. Right. I still had some struggles. And so then my niece needed a ride to church. Yeah. And uh So part of my past is, you know, I always wanted to be the life of the party. So I always rode around with a cooler of beer in my truck and because I was a party on wheels. And (laughs) so uh, I remember pulling up um, to the church to take her. It was on a Wednesday night um, at Oak Grove in Charlotte. And uh, Jamie Allen was uh, there doing an interview, I guess. You know, I think that's what it was called, an interview, you know, for the pastoral position there, he and Diane. And um, they invited me to come in and, you know, and the love that I felt from that church and the women 
wrapped their arms around me, and it was something that I needed. Mm. And um, I don't know that other than Jamie, there might have been one or two other men, but those women just loved me and loved on me. And, you know, and that's that's when, you know, things started to change. And, you know, and I told I prayed, you know, because when I first come in, I was like, I hate men. You know, I ended every relationship that I was in. And. uh, And I asked God, I said, you know, my heart's desire is I just want to be loved. And um, Mike was my boss. He um, is 21 years older than me. And he opened my eyes and my heart to Mike and um, and Mike's to me. And um, he did that. And within about three months, he was my boss for four years. I tell everybody I needed a raise. And so <laughs> within about three months, we were married. Oh, wow. I mean, God just and Jamie just like he's like, well, you come in here hating men. Now you're telling me you're getting married. Yeah, well, that's how it goes. Because yeah, my kids loved him, and uh, I remember when I brought him to the house, Ashley looked at him. When are you gonna marry my mama? <laughs> and no and and Mike's like, well, and so there we go, right? And so uh, so God blessed me with uh, Mike, and we've been married. We just celebrated 21 years because you know people had ugly comments about that. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, well, I was 30 and he was 51 and, you know, and that's kind of an odd. But, uh, man, God knew what he was doing. Oh, he knew what he was doing. And so. Yeah, but what did he have against Mike? uh, Right. I tell Mike all the time. I was like, you know what? God was playing a cruel joke on you while he blessed me. (laughs) And I have stretched that poor man beyond his his uh, capacity at times. And so, um, yeah. But, um, you know, and God is just moving in our lives and we're we're doing great. And, you know, um, I didn't have to work anymore. And so Mike's like, well, hey, you can come home and just, you know, and I was like, "Ooh, I'm going to be Susie Homemaker. Well, that did not work for me. <laughs> and so I went to work for um, Holland Employment okay. under Pam Coons. Yeah. And Pam introduced me to the help center. And this is uh, Pam's fault? <laughs> uh, well, it was funny because uh, the help center was right behind Holland Employment at the time on uh, College Street. And so yeah. she's like, you know, hey, you ought to go down there and see what they got. And so I just go down there and go shopping, you know. And so um, I got introduced to that. And so um, never thought about working there. And um, so so be it. You know, a couple of years later, I'd applied for three different positions there. Yeah. Over about a year and got rejected for two. Okay. And then I got hired in part time. And um, that was in 2005. Okay. And so um, I quickly realized that all of my life stuff up to that point had prepared me for what God had me assigned to do at the Dixon County Help Center. Um, because no school, no college, no college, a better curriculum than no. the life that you lived. Yep. And, um, you know, and to go back real quick, I did work for a company when I was at the um, when I got put into Tennessee Christian and uh, my employer, she invested in me. Um, her name is Susan Friendsley. And, you know, I have not seen her in years, but I would just love to hug her neck mm-hmm. um, because 
she, um, when I called her and told her I was in Tennessee Christian for this, and she was the first person that said, Renee, several people within this company have been where you're at. And then, you know, and that just opened a lot of doors. I but wish she, I could tell people, like, who has been down what roads. And, yeah, they're not my stories to tell. But, you know, if you could do it, I would love to just have a Sunday where you put up on the screen, here's everybody in the church's problems. Now look at it. You're not alone. Right. And um, and and Susan and, and the team there, they invested in me. They encouraged me to go back to high school. So I did adult high school um, and had my high school diploma. But I never did make it back to college except for that one stint where I worked for a company and I said something wrong. And I ended up six months in a class on how to talk. Because I still had a little hood in me, um, but anyway, that's another story. Is that when your East <laughs> yeah, that's when some of my East Nashville come out. But anyway, so I'm working here at the help center, and you know, women would come in, and it's like, well, you just don't understand. Uh, and I, no, I, I do to... understand. I, you know, and I would start sharing my story, okay. and it's like, but I, you know, and so my thing is, it's like, you know, I draw these two lines. Here's the day you you're born, and here's the day you die. All this crap can happen to you before you're 18 or whatever age period. But why in the world would you allow what happened then to dictate the way you're going to live the rest of your life? And who cares if you walk in the doors at 78? Why would you not want your last years? Because how many times do you hear, well, I've been doing this so long. mm -hmm. That's just who I am. That's just who I am is my least favorite phrase yes. in English vocabulary. Yes. I don't care who you am. You right. Know. Exactly. And, you know, and that's, you know, one of the things, too. And I know I've kind of told a whole lot and, and really not said a whole lot. But, um, you know, God took all of that and he put uh, all my stuff and he gave me a heart for women's ministry because I tell people all the time I used to did not like women because they were so mean to me. Um, so I didn't like women and I didn't like church. And, you know, I had issues. And so but but God took all that and gave me a heart uh, for broken women. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of times they'll look at me like, you understand how I feel? Oh, yeah, because unfortunately, we are pretty judgy at times. And so people will look at me and they're like, you don't know what it's like. No, here, let me share some of my story. Yeah, I do. And so, um, and it gives people hope, right? And so it's like, that's one of the things that I want to do is I want to honor God. I want to honor the legacy that my grandmother left. And I want to be a hope and an encouragement for women um, to know that, you know, I don't say for men because God has called me to a women's ministry, right? This is where my place is and my my calling. And so the help center just opened up so many doors for me to uh, to breathe life into um, to people that are struggling. And that's, you know, I know what it's like to go without electricity. I know what it's like to go from food bank to food bank. I know what it's like to um, do stupid stuff yeah. that, you know, people might look at differently but you do what you got to do to take care of your family and um and one thing i tell people is it's not stupid if it works right even if it's a little stupid yeah right and um you know i get it i get it and um you know i want to go to second harvest one day and say y'all need to let me be a guest speaker and tell my story about how you know because people so often want to talk down about people who are struggling or who lie 
to get some kind of service um, because I remember in Nashville, I had three different mailing addresses so that I could go to three different food banks to get food to help feed my children to uh, survive to survive and so you know what it's you know people do what you got to do in circumstances that most of us don't understand but anyway um so you know and i'm always thankful for what god has done um for me and through me um because what seemed like you know i had this terrible thing going on he has really used it to um to honor and glorify him and that's that is my goal i'm not perfect i make all kinds of mistakes i say stuff all the time that makes people mad my face speaks more gets me in more trouble you don't have a poker face do you i don't my yeah my facial expressions get me in way more trouble than my mouth could ever and um but you know what? I love God, and I just, I just want to see His women um, made whole, and to, um, and just help people understand. You know what I'm saying? That, um, you know, just because somebody is going through a difficult season doesn't make them a bad person. And so, you know, I, I go above and beyond um, to make women feel comfortable when they walk in a church. I make sure to the best of my ability, that if a woman walks into the church, um, that we are surrounding her. I don't want a woman to feel like I did. I don't want... um, Oh, and then the other thing is, um, it it took me a few years, but I did get to hear the rest of the story of the woman at the well. And, you know, and it was like, oh, how awesome. So with that, whenever I teach class... I always make sure if I start out with something heavy, I make sure that uh, the end is known before anybody walks out the door because I don't want anybody to ever not hear the rest of the story and think that they're beyond. uh, Good preaching advice I heard was preach like it's the only time you'll ever see them. mm -hmm. Preach like they almost decided not to come. And preach like their life depends upon it. Yes, absolutely. And man, I love those three pieces just because it's... We need people. Look, I need. I know we need. Sometimes we need our toes stepped on. Sometimes we need some hard stuff. Sometimes mm-hmm. we need. Sometimes we need to get confronted. But confrontation happens best in relationship. Yeah. And frankly, the pulpit is not relationship for most people in the right. room. Uh, so what most people need most often is encouragement because encouragement gets you where you want to go. You know. Absolutely. If you put a gun to my head and said you've got to jump across the Grand Canyon. I mean, I would say shoot me because it's going to kill me quicker. Yeah. Um, but if you told me that I've got to run across the Grand Canyon to save my family, I would still die, but I would die trying. Yes, absolutely. You know, people need encouragement. They need something to run towards, not not from. Absolutely. And, you know, and one of the things that, you know, when people share their stories, we, we sent, tend to spend so much time on all the the ugly or the bad and so i don't want to end this without saying you know how good and how amazing god is and how he has been um he has restored the years that the locusts has stolen and um and so um my son i tell my kids all the time that they're my testimony mm-hmm. my son um was the first kid in our family line to graduate college how cool and he did that right here in Dixon County. Um, and uh, Ashley, uh, so Brent is doing well. He and his wife um, and their little girl, Olivia, um, 
they have about a hundred acre farm in uh, Cumberland Furnace, and they are just they're living their best life. I couldn't be more proud of them. Uh, my Ashley. My Ashley, the one that that almost chose, got her degree as a social worker, and she is um, married to the love of her life. And um, we have jokes about that um, because they are building a house, a home um, on about 65 acres, and they have five kids. And uh, they really like each other. She'll kill me for that statement. And, you know, I'm going to have to say this. You know, baby number five, you know, was a failed vasectomy. Just want to throw that into any men, folks. (laughs) Um, You shut your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. But um, her her babies, um, and she has a heart. She has a heart as big as everything. And so one of their dreams um, for their farm is to eventually have tiny homes that um, so that they can minister to um, single pregnant women or single pregnant teenagers to help them in that choice for life um, and to give them a good start. And so that's what her dream is. And so I'm super, super, super proud of her. I'm, I, you know, and I tell people all the time that, you know, I was spoken down to when I, with my children, but both of my kids from that season, God has just... They they never were part of statistics, you know. Well, we rose above our circumstances, but I worthless things in the world. A white picket fence and a pregnant teenager. Yeah, I think I've found some worth in. I don't know what he thinks about the picket fence, but I think he's got some worth in the teenager. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, and I always was like, well, what's that supposed to mean? Well, what he meant by that is that they always require the upkeep of someone else. And, um, but. So look what this family is giving back to the world. Exactly. And, you know, in God's redemption, you know, again, he gave me a husband that I could not ask for more love and um, to be loved in a way that I'm loved. And um, and, you know, one of the things that Mike and I had talked about was it would be great if we could have shared a child together. Yeah. And uh, but because of some health problems that I had, that was not going to happen and uh but god right um ashley was 20 (laughs) and um god brought the most beautiful little girl into our lives when she was eight months old and uh i i couldn't have i couldn't imagine um you know i'm like god how why are you what have I ever done that you would give me another life to be responsible for? I mean, I've, I've messed up. You know, I've done all this. And, and, you know, but he trusted Mike and I with this beautiful blessing, as well as her birth parents. Her birth parents trusted us with her and the sacrifice that they made yeah. um, to be a part of our story. I will be forever grateful for. But um, she's 13 and sassy and, you know, and she's, she keeps us on our toes. That's a danger that she's 13 and sassy. <laughs> and so, and, um, you know, and then I've got another beautiful blessing with us. And uh, that's my little niece, um, Viola, and she's, 
you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, depends on when this is show, uh, aired. But, um, you know, and it's like, wow, God, we must be doing something right that you would entrust these beautiful souls with us. And so, um, you know, I just... And, you know, not only does he trust us with these beautiful blessings, but then he puts me in a position in this community where um, I get to share my story and my love for those that are hurting to make a difference. We don't always do it right. We, you know, we're constantly improving. But you know what? Um, I am so blessed and honored to be a part of the Dixon County Help Center to serve in the role as the executive director and, you know, I just I just want us to always be a beacon of light to be able to help people. People don't uh, realize how much y'all do. You know, thrift store, food giveaways, mm-hmm. rent, electricity, medication, disaster relief. I mean, just give your give your spiel. Okay? Get you know what you you did a great job, but you know what we we are our county's largest food bank, and we help in uh, helping people during their times of needs. We also are an ear in a prayer i mean you know we've had some of our clients that just go through the roughest parts of their life and they'll come to us and just you know uh, i mean i've learned to plan funerals for people that i'm not a you know because somebody needed help and um and so you know we do we just get to be a part of people's lives and um and just a, a beacon of light and for the lord and that is so awesome and amazing to be a part of that. And, you know, we couldn't do what we do without the support of the others. And, you know, people tell you all the time, you know, people support people. That's why I'm so open about sharing my story, um, you know, and that. Um, and I want to encourage people that regardless of where you're at, you don't have to stay there. Let's not cast blame on anybody else. Look at where we're at. Bad things happen to good people. You know, but let's, you know what, let's move forward. And, you know, and that's like even with um, some of the people, God's redemption, his I'm telling you what, when the Lord talks about forgiveness, he knows what he's doing. And, um, you know, there are people that were in my past that were part of my abuse um, that that God has given me the grace and the mercy to uh, forgiveness. And uh, although what was done was not good. It was not right. Um, I can still be in fellowship with some. And, you know, and that is hard for many people. Uh, And so but you know what? Um, God has given me that ability to be able to do that. And so I walk in that and I share that, you know, just and just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean that you're okay with what they've done. But you yeah, it was that thing was not okay. But you and I can be okay. Yes. And then, you know, one of the things that I love to share with women is just because something bad like that happens, it was wrong. It should never, ever, ever, ever happen. But don't live in that. Don't don't let your whole life just don't fade let away. Your identity be someone that abuse. yes, yeah, yeah. and um, and live the best life because again, you know, we have we were born, we die. Don't let what happens in this season dictate the way you're going to live the rest of your life. And if that's the one thing that I can teach people, mm-hmm. is that you know um it can help people see identity in christ yes and, and you know the the obvious versions of addiction and abuse and dropout that the names yes are, are hard enough but there's a more insidious version i think that i think more of our listeners are going to relate to 
I tend to identify with my job. Uh, yeah. You tend to identify with yours. Yes. And it is really easy for us to identify as athlete or worker mm-hmm. or minister or successful business. And that's our identity. Yes. And you see it, you know, when, when somebody who has, has their ide- identity, even as mom, mm-hmm. sometimes it's toxic. Yes. Because what happens when the kids leave the house? You know, the fastest growing segment of divorce in the United States, empty nesters. I could absolutely see that. Uh, because my identity was in mm-hmm. dad, not, you know, we didn't have a marriage. I was mm-hmm. a parent. And, yeah. and I just say all that to say, you know, this this whole conversation, I think it's one we really need to hear. Our identity in Christ, our identity as a balanced human being, our identity not just in our utility to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to have a really hard time when you get old if your utility to other people is the only thing you identify with. When you can't, when you break down and you require help and you can't be a helper anymore. If that's the only thing you identified with, you're in for a tough time. Absolutely. And, you know, and Mike and I, God has uh, given us a ministry of marriage. Um, well, I like to facilitate marriage classes. And um, because I will tell people, the greatest thing that you can do for your children is to love your spouse more than you love your children. Yeah. Oh, women have a hard time with that. But and I will tell them, you know what? As long as there's no abuse going on, right? There's always those fine lines. Yeah, there's exceptions. Yes. But if you're loving your spouse more than you love your children, your children are going to reap the benefits of that okay. in the most amazing way. They're going to have a a loving, stable home. And you know, Mike and I were able to exhibit that to our children and now to our our littles well they're not littles they're teenagers bless us Mm -hmm. Um, and so but they get to see what it's like to live in a healthy loving environment and of course my parents you know great example right there as well but Todd gave me another version of it in the jail ministry he told the guys he said you need to love your parole officer more than you love your family he says if you if you don't prioritize that guy Mm -hmm. you're going to be back here away from your family again Oh, you know, and he said it's a good way to think of it. You've got to do whatever you've got to Mm -hmm. do, you know, pay your fees, make your visits, have clean tests. You got to make that guy happy. Yes. Don't think that you made him happy by making your family happy. You know, he goes, I know this sounds backwards, Mm -hmm. but I think that sounds just as backwards to a lot of people as put God first. Well, what about my my family? What about my kids? And if you put him first, you're going to treat them really well absolutely it's work absolutely but we in putting your kids first you destroy them and you you do absolutely and your marriage will suffer from it and so you know um i believe in investing in people you know i thank people all the time for investing in me um because of the investment that they've put into me has made me who i am today and um so my goal is to invest in people so many times people want to throw people away Mm. they want to say ugly cruel things um you know somebody hurts you you're like i'm done yes and it's like don't do that invest in them people make mistakes invest in them i love working with the work crew at the dixon county sheriff's department they are the best they (laughs) are they are and you know and i tell them all the time you know i'm i was one mistake away from where you at i was a thief but i didn't get caught 
I made really bad decisions. I didn't get caught. So that's the difference between us. I They got caught. I didn't. And then I tell them, you know, and then I found God and I didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, get, again, it's a, just being a hope. And but um, invest in people, see the good that they have in them and um, and know that God can change anybody's heart and don't throw people away. Don't throw them away. And again, what's well, so tough? Boundaries exist for a reason, mm-hmm. healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. But my favorite definition of boundaries are boundaries of the distance where I can love you and me at the same time. Oh, yes, that, cool? that is. Because it's not I'm throwing you away. It's a this is the way that we can do this and succeed. Yes, absolutely. Even boundaries are done right are an investment in people. Absolutely. This has been fun. It has been. I hope I haven't gone over too far. I don't. I told you before. It's like a, this is not like cell phone plans in like 2002. You don't pay by the minute. Yeah. You don't have to wait till after nine or you know. So this has been cool. But is there anything else you want to share today? No, other than I appreciate um, you giving me this opportunity and and thank you for what you're doing in this community because um, you know. God has used you to um, to help restore faith in a lot of different um, people and into churches. And I appreciate you. I appreciate your boldness. And I know you're not asking for a pat on the back, but uh, I know we cut it up and, and tease you a lot. For abuse, it's my and, um, but, but I do I appreciate what you're doing through these podcasts and uh, allowing people an opportunity to share their stories and um, an opportunity for us to listen because uh, we do find hope in other people's story and um yes it is and this has been one of the more fun ministry experiments you know liz coons talked me into starting this and i'll try it and we'll try at least 10 and then i bet we can get to 50 and now the goal is to get to 100 and yeah maybe we get to 100 and i quit who knows maybe we do something else but we're not gonna run out of stories there's fifty-five thousand people in this county um we got enough stories to keep us busy for a while Absolutely. And sometimes the best stories are the ones you never... I didn't know most of your story today. Um, and how long, we've known each other since... I think we met in 2006 or seven. Uh, yes. Uh, so, you know, there's just a lot, a lot of work left to be done. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, God is using us, isn't he? Yeah, man. <laughs> he uses jawbones of donkeys all the time. <laughs> But here we are. Here we are. (laughs) All right, friends. I think that's where we got to call it. I hope you have a good day. Thanks for listening. Hey, you've got a lot of things you could be listening to. You could be listening to some crackpot on the radio tell you why his politics are right or some some, uh, has-been athlete telling you how your sports team could have lost. But you took the time today to listen to this, to hear what God's up to. And I just appreciate that you'd, you'd give us a little bit of your time. I appreciate that you would look for God's stories, because I think when you look for God's stories, you find them. Uh, That's what I believe, at least. Okay, until next time, can't wait to find out what God does in your story. It's going to be cool. Thanks for listening to Rough Drafts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, help us spread the word by leaving a rating and review. Until next time, let's keep looking for how God writes His love into our stories.